J. Guru Dave. Registration is now open for Tom's 2024 Australian tour. Once again, Tom will be giving knowledge sessions and group meditations, as well as a four-night, five-day rounding retreat in Jeringong. If you haven't learned Vedic meditation yet, Tom will be teaching Vedic meditation while in Sydney, as well as advanced techniques to those who have already learned Vedic meditation. Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknowles.com slash Australia. Jay Gurudev. Jay comes from the Sanskrit Jaya. Jaya means victory or glory to. Guru means a remover of darkness. Deva is the word for a shining one. It's from where we get our English word divine. Glory to the divine teacher, Jay Gurudev. Meaning, I'm not the innovator of this knowledge. I am someone who is a good loudspeaker for it. And the knowledge itself came from an ancient tradition. And in each generation, coming down over the long corridor of time, every teacher has said Jay Gurudev to indicate, I'm not the innovator of this. Jay Gurudev. Welcome to the Vedic worldview. My name is Tom Knowles. In today's episode, we talk to... Lodro Rinsler on Buddhism and Vedic knowledge. Lodro is a student of Sakyong Mimpam Rinpoche in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition. He has written several books on Buddhist meditation, as well as a weekly Huffington Post column on the applications of meditation to everyday life. Rinsler's books, Walk Like a Buddha and The Buddha Walks into the Office, are both recipients of the Independent Publishers Book Award. I feel really honored to actually be both here and in both of your presence. So, likewise, it's a, it's a raw treat. It might be helpful for each of you to take a very you know the elevator thirty second kind of intro just to contextualize things. And if you can do that, that'd be great. Maybe Lodro, you kick us off sure. with just a little bit of your background. Sure. So um, I was born and raised in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition here in New York City, started meditating at a very young age in that tradition, and then started teaching in it about 16 years ago, uh, trained under my teacher, Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, who I continue to study with regularly. And then more recently, about five years ago, I started writing books, most notably, the first one was The Buddha Walks Into a Bar, and then it went on to The Buddha Walks Into the Office, and Walk Like a Buddha, and they seem to have a running theme with the Buddha thing. And then a year and a half ago, I co-founded Mindful, which is New York's drop-in meditation studios. I now have to ask, we just went from one to three very quickly. So we are now uh, quickly expanding. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, Tom, maybe your version of the 30-second <laughs> intro. I was trained to teach meditation by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi about 50 years ago. I've taught about 40,000 people worldwide and. Vedic meditation. I was for 26 years one of the senior people in the Transcendental Meditation Organization, but uh, we went our separate ways. I became independent uh, in the mid-1990s and um, 
Now I teach all around the world on all continents except Antarctica. <laughs> and um, and uh, New frontiers. Exactly. Yeah. Travel Yet. From, <laughs> right. Exactly. So far. <laughs> and travel from place to place uh, conducting courses and carrying out follow-up with my students. Awesome. Well, very notable and impressive um, starting off at such a young age. I happen to have a six-year-old. By the way, my name is Ray, Ray Gray. Um, you and I have yet to met, meet, and today's our first day. So I've been a practicing meditator for approximately 20 years in a, a lineage that's not so dissimilar from uh, Tom's, Wadic. It's a mantra-based meditation. I was saying that I have a six-year-old, and so uh, just imagining him kicking off at the age you did is uh, highly uh, right in my face, so it's impressive. <laughs> and likewise for you, Tom, it's quite a few people that you've touched, yeah. and, that, and that's impressive, obviously, as well. So I have a whole bunch of questions and things we can talk about, but before I do that and before I kick off into anything, if there's anything on either of your minds that's either arising now or you have just floating around that you want to put out there, maybe that, that's a good place to put off get off, start off? From my perspective, I'm curious what your questions and points are. Okay. And that's my, that's my start. Take us for the ride, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Awesome. You know, Eric Cahan, the guy who kind of kicked this off for us, was looking for a provocateur as he would talk about it. And (laughs) I'm not sure if that's my tact in this, Mm -hmm. um, especially given where we're all coming from and the ultimate unity that we're on a regular basis striving for we're looking to connect with. However, there is the belief that most, at least for me here, most religions, philosophies at their very essence are about a journey home Mm. and they'll be dressed up in their own particular vernacular for the time. And so there is that kind of foundational perspective that I bring to this dialogue. However, it's in the exploration of our, our unique backgrounds that differences can be appreciated and seen And it's with that that maybe some illumination can occur for whoever might be listening. And in this case, that might occur here in this embodiment. So that's that's the context. And so I guess as we proceed, there's going to be some questions that I'll put forward. But at the onset, I'd I'd like to talk about and see if you guys can comment on, maybe not immediately, but just have that floating there, is what does it mean to live intentionally? Mm -hmm. And what is authentic an authentic life really mean? You know, we can learn a lot from the wisdom traditions about what that might mean and be curious to hear, you know, what it means to live a happy, fulfilling life coming from the traditions that each of you come from. And as I said, we don't need to dive into that right away. And I think that'll come out as we talk about things. Now, your your journey, Lord Dro, you got started pretty early. And do you recall the things that propelled you, the things, was it something you inherited as just part of a familial context? Or was there, do you recall for yourself, something that was pulling you or you were individually, authentically being motivated by? Yeah, it's a great question. And I appreciate, you know, just speaking that there is a uh, a lot of unity within these traditions, but then also such wonderful and subtle differences that I'm I already want to be like, let's get into the question of home. But for me, it was in speaking of home. And I think part of why I have such an affinity for your son, Tom, is that both of us grew up with this in the household. Yeah. And that's actually pretty unique for 
Westerners. You know, I, I think it's it's we're very lucky, both of us, to have that. And people say, what what was it like being raised Buddhist? As if I know something else. Like, well, my other life when I was Christian, it was very, you know, like I don't necessarily remember that. Um, but there was something environmental. And you mentioned this word home, and it just really resonated. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, we have this notion of samsara. Uh, this sort of cycle of suffering that just sort of exists, that there's everything from having a hangnail to losing a loved one and everything in between, the sort of nature of uh, the pains of birth and aging and sickness and death. And uh, just to kick it off on a really light note, and um, there's a new book out that's uh, called The Road Home by my friend Ethan Nickturn, who's a contemporary of mine, another Shambhala Buddhist teacher. And in it, he translates some sort of like commuter, like we're all commuting. That we're always in transit and looking for something else outside of what's going on right now. And I think that's such a lovely way to actually think of home as like what's going on right now, actually coming home to ourselves. So I was raised in a Buddhist household, sure. And I think that definitely um, influenced me overall because there's such a culture of, um, my tradition we say basic goodness, which is not like good versus bad, but like basic wholeness or completeness. And the idea that if something goes wrong when I was a kid, it's not that I was wrong or that I was bad. It was the fact that something bad happened, which is such a subtle distinction. But I think that really permeated my upbringing and actually um, was very helpful. So when I did really actively start participating in long retreats, you know, like my first month-long retreat was when I was 17. And I went up to Nova Scotia, shaved my head, took the robes, the whole nine yards, did temporary ordination stint. And I remember very clearly doing this walking meditation. It's beautiful up there, this, this wide-open windows. And there's this whale that came up and breaking through the sea and landing again. And there is a moment of real clarity where I realized that my path had diverged from that of my parents, that it was mm. no longer their thing. They had never done what I was currently doing mm. and that I clearly had gone off and done something on my own. So at the age of 17, I think that was really the point that it got reified in my head of like, one, that this was my own path, but two, also that the notion of home is actually coming into your own present experience of your right. spirituality. Well, that's interesting. And, and just to double down on that a little bit, so you mentioned 17 is that kind of like where there was a blossoming of sorts. Mm -hmm. uh, and the question is going back, because I'll, I'll just be straight up. I remember when this queued up as a, a, a podcast and you were, I looked a little bit into you just really briefly. And, you know, six years old, meditation, real young guy, these books, marketing oriented. And there was skepticism that arose like mm -hmm. pretty, pretty, pretty right away. Mm -hmm. I did listen to one of the podcasts, and then I was like, whoa, there's something here, and it was very cool. But it does still remain with me, this idea of starting at a very young age and having the discrimination to recognize that I want this versus something that is put on me or mm -hmm. you know, inherited a philosophy versus come to it authentically. Yeah. And, and I think you, you kind of went there but going back to how it began, if there's anything you can say about that, you know, beginning to meditate at six, is that sure. what you said? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's heavy duty. Yeah, I suppose it is. Again, it's not like I knew anything else. But, you know, I, I think there was this period of time where, like all teenagers, you know, starting at six and then going into like my early teen years, there was like this sort of like, I'll try it and then I'll rebel against it and I'll dye my hair blue and wear a cross and then I'll go right back and do another like weekend long retreat and sort of like... I think many of us, like if that was my biggest rebellion, that I was going to go Zen instead of Shambhala Buddhist, like I think my parents were okay with it. But it was very interesting because... Um, I guess, did you ever feel pressure? I didn't. That's Yeah, I was just right. about to say, like I never felt that they wanted me to do that. 
And right. um, in fact, when I was in college and I was a religious studies major and every summer I'd go away for very long retreats and that was all I did. I would meditate. I was becoming a professional meditator, which even then, you know, it's not that long ago, right. a dozen years ago, but like that's not my, – my father in particular was like, what are you going to be when you grow up? You know, this is not right. a practical thing. This is – so it was actually me – saying, no, 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 this is my thing now. It's so clearly my thing. Um, and I was going and doing different experiences that they had never done before. And I think, you know, what, you're, what I'm hearing is that you're really given authentic space to yeah. come into your own. Yeah. And um, what, a, what a blessing and gift that is. Yeah, for which I'm extremely grateful. Yeah. yeah, and I think you're giving it back from what I can see, the little bit I know about you. So you. Um, that's awesome. So turning, turning to Tom, obviously uh, a whole different thing, but one thing I, I don't know about is how you came to be inspired to go down a path of self-discovery or however you want to refer to that. How your initial, if you can recall, impulse to begin this journey home as we started with, how, how did that happen? I was a son of a combat, a career combat fighter pilot who became a general in the United States Air Force, and wow. he was the son of a senator. So I wasn't in a family that... Typically, you'd think, especially in the time frame in which I lived as a teenager, would be encouraging of this. If anything, uh, was in the 1960s, although we, we give a lot of conceptual ideas about what the 60s were like. In fact, the 60s were incredibly conservative. There were a few oddballs here and there on Carnaby Street and, you know, in Haight-Ashbury, but mostly the 60s were very conservative. We'd been stationed in Hawaii, and I learned <coughs> surf, and... Then we got stationed in Washington, D.C., where it was a long way to the coast. And my saving grace was Surfer Magazine that arrived every month or every two weeks in my mailbox. And one day at the top of a page of a, of a photographic special, the words yoga appeared. And all it did was showed some surfers, as I now know it, sitting in very awkwardly bad <laughs> yoga positions wearing wetsuits. And then appealed to you instantly. <laughs> <laughs> but the word Y-O-G-A, I didn't know what it meant. And <clears throat> the little caption at the bottom said, many top surfers are using this ancient physical culture. But it didn't describe anything more than that. And I asked my mom, what's yoga? And she goes, I, you know, I don't know. It's like Hungarians get this milk thing and they put bacteria in it and it turns into a – she was talking about yogurt. yogurt yeah. and, I, and yogurt in those <laughs> days was – even yogurt was not known. Uh, yes. right. It was an odd thing. I, I said, I don't think that's what it is. So she said, go to the library. So I went, Fairfax County Library. I didn't know the difference between card files and uh, author files and um, subject files. So I pulled a file and started looking up YOG, and then I got to Yogananda. I was in the author files. And I pulled that book down and saw that face looking at me from the mm -hmm. cover, and I wasn't sure if it was a man or a woman with long hair and those riveting eyes, autobiography of a yogi. How old were you at this point? I was 16. Okay. And, uh, and I thought, whatever this is, this is me. I started reading the book. I didn't go to school for three days after that. Read the book cover to cover. At the end, it said there was a place in Washington, D.C. where you could learn, and I went and learned. Uh, there was a woman, Sri Daimata, who was one of the followers of Yogananda. She had been trained by him to teach people. I learned that methodology, and a few weeks later... I heard from some of those Yogananda people that there was an Indian guru coming to the East Coast, to Poland Springs, Maine. And, you know, he was referred to by an epithet of being, you know, the beacon light of the Himalayas. It was Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and I went there to Poland Springs, and uh, he was holding a retreat. 
long story short, I ended up getting initiated into Transcendental Meditation. And from the moment I saw him, I knew this is my guru. It was also mm-hmm. around that age, right? It was around that age. Yeah. So, you know, I was uh, at a very early age swept up into this whole experience. And uh, finally, when I decided to, I was invited to by him to uh, go on teacher training mm-hmm. uh, in India. And uh, so I was... Um, swept along by the enthusiasm of my own experiences mm-hmm. and you know I had to explain things to my parents and I had to explain things to everybody but I was undaunted by the fact that I was a real black sheep in my family mm-hmm. my father to his immense credit was a very he was a kind of warrior poet and um very liberal minded thinker and in fact had been heir attaché to JFK and his his father the senator was a democrat so we we were a kind of a, you know, open-minded, uh, educationally oriented family. And um, long story short, off I went. And wow. um, that's quite a story. I'm glad uh, I asked. I'm, mm. I'm glad to hear that. It's uh, the formative stories, the things that get us going down a path, are very intriguing to me. Um, mm. Especially, you know, as 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 you both are, we're in the world to evangelize is way too strong of a word, I think. <laughs> but we are through our lives looking to inspire others towards the thing that we have found valuable, right? And so how that happens is of curiosity to me. Jumping ahead, way ahead, from the Genesis kind of stuff to the heart of where there may be some slight differences, which I'd like to explore. So really going right to it from your experience and what you've, the philosophy you've been exposed to, why do you think we're here? Why do we think, why do I think we're here? like yeah. on earth, yeah. all of us? Okay. We can, we can do both. <laughs> we can big. do both. And or like, like why are we sitting here in this room? Both. Um, What's the larger story? And then for that matter, you're sitting in this chair now. We, the three of us are, yeah. you know, what's propelling you to take this time out? To, yeah. I to think they're actually very linked. Yeah. yeah. And I, I not, imagine you, you suspected that. I really do believe that there is something about uh, our presence here that is about actually, how best to put it, sort of uplifting and supporting one another. And, you know, and I think in some traditions we might say towards a higher state of consciousness, we would say maybe to a larger sense of peace. So the Buddhist view is that we would actually, that we all possess the same seed of enlightenment that the Buddha has. So the, some would say Tathagatagarbha, Buddha nature, whatever it might be. But the idea that underneath all of our swirling layers of confusion and neurosis and aggression and self to self and to others, uh, there is this sense of peace right underneath the surface it's right there waiting to be discovered and i really do think that that's sort of our mission so to speak as individuals to actually connect with that to the best of our ability and then act from that so that we're actually of benefit to others and i think you know it's i'm finding this interesting thing having grown up meditating where mindfulness is now like the big like buzzword right mm. like you know it's um i ran to a friend from high school last night and he told me that he had seen that uh, Mindful, the meditation studio, had been written up in Time magazine with this big cover of Mindful. And he said, this is really amazing. You're on to something, as if it hasn't been around for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and I think within that, there's this critique that mindfulness just means that you're present with everything and then you ignore the world around you. Mm-hmm. But in my own experience, the more in touch we are with what's going on with us, the more we actually start to relate to and then have empathy for others. There's a Tibetan word for meditation, gom, G-O-M. It can be translated as meditation. It can also be translated as become familiar with or familiarization. 
So the process of meditation, which is, it, as you said, it's sort of my life, my, it is my life's work at this point to try to make it as accessible as possible. The process of meditation in my mind is really about becoming so familiar with all of who we are so that we can actually learn to accept ourselves, that we do understand some of the maybe, yes, wonderful and creative and positive parts, but also the sort of scary and neurotic parts. And then when we start to see that play out in others, it's not that we think negatively about them, that we're the higher spiritual person and they're down there that they would ever, um, that we'd pity them. But actually there's some sense of like open-heartedness, like, oh, I see you hooked by anger. I know it's like when I get hooked by anger and how painful that is. Your heart, heart opens up. Your heart opens compassion up. Compassion So I flows. think the compassion aspect is really why we're here, in my mind. Gotcha. And I'll circle back to the this trend of mindfulness. Okay. And uh, I figured it was also 26, avoidable. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's 2,600-year-old trend, right? right. Um, and for you, Tom, if you were to, you know, we're talking about drawing the, the largest possible circle here. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's beyond a circle, the, the idea of our purpose. I think uh, shared experience, mm. and there are themes that you've touched on. So in order for shared experience to occur, that which is one which is, you know, a basic quantum mechanical idea from physics and also a basic idea from the Veda, the ancient body of knowledge from which meditation arose. Oneness has to bifurcate. It has to split into two in order to have love Mm. because you can't have unity without there being two. So one is not unity. Unity is two things that have unified, and they've unified by virtue of shared experience. And there's a big distinction made in Vedanta, which is, you know, the, the, uh, the, the crest jewel of the Vedic worldview of thinking, that there is artful unity, which is the artfulness of having shared experience very close to melding back into oneness, certainly recognition of oneness, but not quite oneness, because if you go back into oneness, all the oneness has to do is bifurcate again. And so hovering on the cusp of oneness, artful unity. And artful unity is actually what we're looking for whenever we relate to anybody. Mm. You know, we like somebody to the extent that we have a degree of shared experience. So if I'm dating somebody and they like the same kind of pizza as me, I'm, we're, you know, we're getting some unity points. And, <laughs> you know, if they like the same kind of films that I like, we're getting some unity points. And eventually we start feeling love coming. And if we are just frank about it, what we're really loving is ourself. Because if they don't like the same pizza as me and they don't like the same movies and they don't like the same politicians and we can't find any unity points, it's very hard to feel love. So love is actually self-recognizing, recognizing self. And the reason for us being here is to have that experience, for self to recognize itself and to live inside of artful unity. Hmm. So what, what arises in hearing both of you guys speak is answers that don't necessarily address a freedom from non-duality. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a dualistic thing happening in both explanations. And from what I've come to appreciate is that that's a, a context and a point of departure that can color this entire journey home. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess then the concept of transcendence. What does that mean? And does transcendence mean a perpetual living in love? And I guess, you know, what arises in in thinking about the Buddhist tradition is the experience of the void and what that might mean, or the role of the ego and what role that has in our lives. And I don't mean to project into the 
into the answers or into the dialogue something that's totally incongruent and maybe it's not and maybe you guys can just elaborate on that tom you want to kind of speak to that or? yeah i think that transcendence is absolute oneness that's pure existence it's consciousness experiencing itself but the first thing that happens once it has that sense of amness i am is that it starts to have a desire to become many so transcendence is not content with being transcendent. It's constantly issuing forth into multiplicity. But that process is intentional. You talked about intentionality at the beginning. Mm -hmm. The intent of that which is the one is to become many and recognize one again. That's the play. But why, why is the intent to become many? Because mm -hmm. love. Okay. Love can't occur if there's only me. If there's only one isness, one... Right unbounded, unmanifest consciousness field, right. then it can't experience the joy of recognition. So bifurcation or diversity has to occur, apparent diversity, in order to have that process of drawing back towards the oneness, and therein lies the joy. And this is why it bifurcates. This is why right. it moves into many. Hmm. So it seems like it's inevitable if one is going to be on this path, that we're going to be constantly creating, right? Yeah. We're constantly going to be uh, establishing effects. And I don't mean to jump to the karmic concept here, mm -hmm. but we're going to have fruits that um, accrue to us, mm -hmm. right? That perpetuate something, mm -hmm. right? And how do we free ourselves from that acquisition of experience, that karmic acquisition that maintains our reincarnation or mm. our presence or our more bondage to a temporalness <laughs> does that make sense you know what i'm saying um, well i i can uh, can we i think of and i um, i think of the those sadhus is that what mm -hmm. they're called yeah they don't do anything right yeah. they're not creating they're simply responding yeah right except that the person that you're what you're looking at there is a body and that consciousness, and you know, not all sadhus are obedient to this, but in the ideal right. of a sadhu. To illustrate the point. Right. Really, basically, what the Vedic worldview says is that individuality actually is not only individual. It is, in fact, cosmic. So that all intent, all desire, actually is the desire of the universe channeling through the individual. Now, to what extent can the individual get a clear message or a garbled message? If the individual's stressed and... Their idea is self-aggrandizement in terms of individuality itself becoming powerful, then you have problems. But one of the things that happens through regular practice of meditation is that your individuality recognizes its universality. It's not so much that the individual achieves cosmic consciousness. It's that the cosmic consciousness acquires an individual. And so the cosmic consciousness acquiring an individual. Is there really, is it fair to say acquiring yeah. or is it more of a merging? It's, a, it's, a, it's the letting go of the resistance by the individual right. to being cosmic. Right. And so then, you know, the meditation actually ultimately does that, that it's not the individual getting more and more and more powerful. It's the individual actually becoming more and more cosmic and realizing that and stopping the obstruction. Right. Excellent. Thank you. And then, Lodro, I mean, you know, the whole mindfulness thing, oftentimes, it's funny, what arises here, very much similar to when we had a conversation, Tom and I, about guru and all the things that that mm. stimulates in various people's minds. 
both positive and negative, and then you spend time with it, you appreciate that there's this larger context of it dispelling darkness, right? Well, mindfulness also carries with it maybe some ideas of, you know, an attachment to the mind, mm-hmm. that, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that one is uh, using the mind and it's maintaining a certain kind of individuality. And so in this context of purpose and transcendence, to whatever extent we can speak to that, right? And the dualistic framework that potentially an ego-oriented existence can be maintaining. How, how, how would you speak to that from your tradition and teachings? It's a great question. So I think with both of us, we're talking both on a relative level and then absolute level. Right. So a relative level, an absolute level, you know, from a Buddhist point of view, there is this thing called emptiness that you referenced earlier, right? The sense of egolessness, that I do not exist in the solid way that I think I do. That even if I look at my body, you know, science tells me that every seven years, each cell of this body dies and is replaced. It's an entirely different body than I had seven years ago. Like I have one concept of who I am and I carry it with me. But the more I let go of that concept, we could say the more I am actually connected Who's to the universe. Who's doing the letting go? The, so it, this is like when we get into the absolute, there's no me that's letting go. So literally, egolessness is deconstructing the whole notion of this being, not just the physical being, but also the mental being, getting down through my sense perceptions and all of these things and saying, this is just like a loosely held construct. It's like a paper mache version right. of me. I keep like building and layering on yeah. with, oh, I wrote a new book and I put that paper mache on. And oh, I opened another mindful right. and there's that paper mache. There's and a I'm getting objectivity yeah. to it, a witnessing and observing. So, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, some people would say the watcher, you mm-hmm. know, but like, you, again, when we talk about these sort of high up here ideas in the absolute, we're, la- we're labeling concepts on things that are ineffable. And I think that's sort of where sometimes we get stuck. Right. So, yes, there's this notion of emptiness or egolessness. So it's not just me that's not as solid and real as I might suspect. It's all of this. It's this table that we're at and, and it's Tom and it's this speaker that we're next to. Like everything else is also held together by concept. And the more we relax that, yes, the more we actually have a sense of getting in touch with what is, i.e. reality, i.e. what we would say in our tradition would be Buddha nature, this awakeness. And I, I love the fact that there is like, you know, Buddhism stemming out from the Vedic traditions. We have the sense of connection, sort of like different branches of this tree. And we don't say a lot about like the universe and the cosmos. We say sort of like reality as it is and wakefulness and different words. But I, I'm wondering if we are actually touching on the same thing, because I would say when we get out of our own way, we are more able to just be on a relative level, authentic live with intention and all of these things that we opened up with. Right. Well, it's it's clear that we're, the playing field is the incarnation and the mental disposition we bring to our activities, meditation or otherwise. And, mm-hmm. and actually, that might be a good segue to, to meditation. From your understanding, Lodro, the, the purpose of meditation um, and its role in one's life. And even going back to whether it's the Buddha or what might have preceded that from Saint, uh, ancient scripture or whatever, what was the earmarked objective of it? Mm-hmm. And I know it may be a similar kind of answer, yeah, sure. uh, but we're looking to refine it, I think. A little, at least I'm, I'm interested, so that's why I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. 
when we talk about the Buddha resting with the breath as the object of meditation, sometimes it's called shamatha, calm abiding or peaceful abiding meditation, which is such a misnomer. And it's also known as mindfulness now, right? So we're being mindful of the breath because we don't always immediately feel calm or peaceful. But, but it, the idea I, is that we're... But what's being mindful of the breath, you know? What um, is? Yeah. Like who is? Yeah. Or? What's the identity? And it, I mm. guess, the, you know, it's that dualism that is in there or not in there and how to speak to that. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. If we're sitting here saying we ought to be thinking about the breath, there is something that is thinking about the breath. If I say actually just feel what's going on right now, it's actually removing some of the meanness, you yeah. could say, a yeah. meanness, yeah, from away from it, which is actually a big challenge to a number of people that just want to come out and have a little bit less stress in their life, you know, sleep better. You know, they, they see all the science around these forms of meditation. They say, oh, this is going to benefit me as an individual. And but the ultimate purpose to answer your question more directly is to wake up, and waking up includes transcending this smaller right. version of me. So um, perfect. And so once that's occurred, is there a need to continue meditating? Absolutely, because Why? I mean, how many decades have we spent really focusing on this paper mache me, right. <laughs> and really building it up? So yeah, maybe I can tear a hole open and actually just see what's there underneath. But at some point. I go to work on Monday and I get an angry email and I'm like papering mache up that hole. And I just start reifying my sense of identity once more. So I think meditation is a life's work. It's not yeah. that we hit a certain point and now we on a relative level are less stressed out and on an absolute level have you know become completely open and awake. It's, I think, a gradual unpacking. It requires vigilance. Right. Yeah. And I remember very clearly, you know, back in the 90s, uh, before he passed away, there was this wonderful Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Dilko Kensei Rinpoche, which is really one of those like last of the greats, you know, like the sort of training that he received is no longer available out there to a large degree. And um, he got up in front of this crowd of thousands of people and just looked shocked and said, why are you here? I only know this much, you know, just held up his fingers. And I th I, it's not that he was being humble. I mean, partly, I'm sure he was, but there is also, I feel like there's a real belief in that. That yeah. the more we go deeper with this, the more we realize that well, I don't really right. know anything at all, right. you know? And it's not about like accumulating knowledge, it's actually getting in touch with reality or however we want to paint these, these ineffable things with words. Yeah, Socrates would say, all I know is that I don't know. Yes, I you feel know, it every day, are, actually. Are, uh, and I'm not being humble <laughs> either. I really don't know. <laughs> That's very cool. So I'll circle back to that uh, a little bit. But I, I wanted to hear, Tom, your, from your Vedic experience and studies and knowledge, where meditation comes into being and its earmarked purpose from the context of the Vedas. Well, I'd uh, borrow from Lodro's concept of from the point of view of the absolute, one thing, from the point of view of the individual, another thing. Right. It's a little like asking a kindergarten child, what's the purpose of learning the ABC? Right. Who ends up becoming a professor of literature. And when he's a professor of literature, if he looks back at why did I learn the ABC, he knows. From the point of view of the child who's learning the ABC, it's a cool song, you know, mm -hmm. A, B, C, D, and we all get to sing it together and hold hands and it's fun. And I can come home and teach it to my little sister, you know. Um, so then the benefit package of meditation from the perspective of somebody who is a neophyte coming to this for the first time is going to be things like, you know, my God, you know, there's all this science around it, as Lodro says. You know, there's amazing benefits. People live longer. They are freer of disease. They are more intelligent they are and all these things are true faster reaction times and you know more genuine and so on and so forth 
And, of course, you know, from the perspective of a Vedic master living in the Himalaya, they're looking at that and saying, that's all okay. It's all okay, but that's not the real purpose of meditation. The real purpose of meditation is self-realization. What is the truth of the self who's experiencing these desires to be this way? So a very quick anecdote that, you know, there was a, a world champion cyclist whose girlfriend convinced him to come and learn to meditate with me. And I was able to demonstrate to him that, you know, he had a certain reaction time capability in his performance that could be enhanced if he meditated. And he just stated to me, absolutely, all I'm interested in is my legs moving up and down faster. I don't want any of the software. I want the hardware of the meditation. So is it okay if I learn to meditate? And I said, absolutely. I taught him to meditate. And, you know, three, four weeks later, his legs were moving up and down faster. But then he was saying to me, that's kind of amazing because when I meditate, this other thing happens. And I said, what's that? And he said, I kind of forget where I am and I forget who I am and I forget what I am. I'm still conscious. Everything that I love is easily forgotten. And, you know, what is that? And I said, hang on, you told me you didn't want to know any of the software. You didn't want to know any of the explanations. You just wanted to get your feet moving up and down faster. He goes, okay, okay, that was then. Now I want to know what this is. <laughs> so right. so however, you know, you, however they get there, right? You know, it's the thin end of the wedge. You know, right. people always come to meditation with their own concept of why they're coming mm-hmm. to it, where they end up with it if they continue practicing, is somewhere completely different, fabulously different. Right. So um, a lot to unpack there, you know, if they keep practicing Mm. and what leads them there to begin with and what sustains the practice, those kinds of topics would be worth just spending a little time on. But before we go too far down the path of meditation, you mentioned the Buddha and the focus on the breath. And I know in the Vedic tradition, it's more traditionally mantra-oriented. Is that correct? Yeah, it's mantra-oriented with the caveat of saying, learning to let go of the mantra. Right. Because that's the point. The letting go is the important part, not the mantra itself. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. So the role of the mantra and um, how, how one's relationship with the mantra should inform their practice and... If, and I think in our initial conversation, you said the word has no meaning to it. or has no intended meaning. No mm. intended meaning. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a little different from what I've read and mm-hmm. experienced. Mm-hmm. And there's no vibrational frequency to it that has a value other than what we import to it. Or maybe just open that up a little bit. Uh, it's either a meaningless word or there is a vibrational value to it. Think, Up to a point. Yeah, I think that properly understood, first of all, from baseline, the basic idea is that there needs to be a medium of experience. It may be breath, it may be tactile sensation, it may be any one of the five sensory properties. And whatever that is has to be transcended. So whatever that medium of experience is, it is the thing that's taking the mind on some kind of a ride in the direction of losing the medium. Mm-hmm. And so in Vedic meditation, we it, use... Is the medium also the ego? or The medium uh, is... The, the ego is constructed by the idea of holding on to something. Okay. I'm holding on to this. Right. And this is the precious thing. And the precious thing actually has to disappear because when that happens... So it's the thing and the person holding the thing. Correct. Right. So it's the breath and the holder of the That's breath. That's right. And then when, when, the, when the medium disappears, it kind of distracts the holder into unboundedness 
Right. There's a moment of unboundedness that, that occurs where, you know, the one holding on to the medium of experience has let go of the medium, and then what am I? The knower is knowing itself. Right. So, no medium you, so back to the mantra itself, carrying a value or not carrying a value. Well, in, a, in my tradition, we use mantras, which are a particular class of mantras called bija mantras, and bija means seed. This particular kind of mantra is not the same as, say, Om Namah Shivaya or something that you might repeat in a yoga studio that has intention and meaning. Mm -hmm. It's a type of mantra which has no intended meaning. It doesn't work on the level of meaning. I mean, you could take any word that can be uttered by the human mouth, and somebody in the world somewhere will say, that means a clay pot in my country, mm -hmm. or that's my auntie's name or something. But when I say there's no intended meaning, it's not working on the level of intent or on the level of meaning. It's working on the level of that sound having a mellifluous quality. And then one's approach to that... What's mellifluous mean? Sounds sweet, good? Sweet and right. honey-like. Yeah. yeah, attractive. So the, yeah. the, <laughs> the, sound, <laughs> the sound itself starts to fade and fade and fade and then the meditator's trained when you notice it fading don't hold on right let it go and their first reaction is but you told me that's a valuable sound for me mm -hmm. that's right i did but the technique is when you feel it fading don't hold on let it go right. what happens is the mantra gets more and more soft and more and more charming and a point's reached where it is at maximum subtlety maximum charm but then it vanishes right and the mind is left for a moment without an object of experience. Yeah. There's no object. There's only the subject, the experiencer. Right. That's the unity. And then the first thing that happens is in that new meditator is, you know, here I am. What or, gives? This is it. Or what was this? <laughs> but, of course, that's a thought, and that's the first thought you might have upon coming out of that transcendence. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you need to know, once again, how effortlessly to return to that pulsation of sound and allow that thing to fade away again. And so that's and basically the technique. If you import into it that, you know, the sound that you're using, the word that you're using in the mind, the mantra, has deep and rich meanings, then the mind starts to become possessive of it. Mm -hmm. And instead of, with it. instead of it becoming something mm -hmm. that fades away, you know, the word mantra can be defined in Sanskrit as man-mind, tra, a conveyance or vehicle or an instrument. I like the word vehicle because it's a mind vehicle. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a taxi. It's taking you somewhere and dropping you off. Mm -hmm. it's, you're not supposed to stay in the taxi all day. Right. So <laughs> the, the mantra properly used. So when sometimes people say to me, oh, this is mantra meditation. Well, actually, it's not. It's learning how to transcend your mantra right. meditation. Got it. I'd like to circle back to the Sanskrit language mm. where many of these mantras come from. Mm. And my understanding of Sanskrit and the language mm. and what the power of Sanskrit is. Yeah. Um, because I think maybe that's where there's a, a confluence of there being um, greater meaning in the language mm. and as a consequence also greater meaning when that language is used in mm. meditation. Yeah. But maybe Lodro, the, the idea of writing what Tom was talking about, that the mantra itself, let's say, has no meaning. And partially that's in order to facilitate the letting go, right? You don't want to import a whole bunch of stuff and, and make it just more stuff to have to transcend. Similarly, mm -hmm. if one is focusing on the breath, the identification there wouldn't be necessarily with the word and what it means, but it could be just as much with identification with the body since mm -hmm. the focus is on breath. And so, can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, I appreciate that um, 
description of transcending the mantra because I think it's just the way you phrase it, it adds so much clarity to this tradition, which I think often people just say, as you said, mantra-based meditation, yeah. right? Which yeah. is part of it, yeah. <laughs> but not yeah. all of it. Yeah. So I, I would say similarly, yeah, I mean, the breath-based meditation, which is, by the way, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, it's one of a bazillion types, right? You know, we have a... Is there a mantra-based? There is. Yeah. You know, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition that I come from, you know, my daily practice it involves mantra. It involves being with the breath. It involves resting the mind. It involves mantra recitation. There's visualization. There's lots of different things going on with the express purpose of at some point it all drops away. And I remember... Many, many years ago, um, I was doing three years of what's known as nundro. Nun being before, dro being go. Sort of before you go on to the more advanced practices, you do a series of prostrations. You do mantra recitation. Uh, you do mandala creation. You do a guru yoga practice. And I was working on this particular set of those over three years. Two years in, my teacher said, actually, what I want everyone to focus on is this other nundro. <laughs> whole other set of things. Same, you know, prostrations, mantra, mandala, guru yoga. And I want everyone to do that. And I said, so do I do one? Do I leave the other one behind? He goes, why don't you do both? So I ended up doing both. And I was like, God, God damn it. You know, like, <laughs> so like here I thought I was going to go into the more advanced stuff. And at some point it all dropped away. And I realized, oh, this, these are all just practices. So that at some point I actually wake up to my innate state. Right. No, it doesn't matter in some sense to me at this point in my life whether I'm doing just focusing on the breath and letting myself at some point just relax to the point of actually just being with what is mm -hmm. or whether there's a visualization that I'm using to invoke these qualities or whatever it might be because there's some, it's also a point my mind is my mind at the end of the day. Your mind is your what? Is my mind at the end of the day. Like it, regardless of what I'm working with, there's still either a very chaotic, you know, what do I need to do today sort right. of mentality going on? Or is it fair I'm to call it, it to my mind? Is that, is that from this ultimate place? A, no, of course a, not. I mean, it's it, – I'm talking relative terms, you right. know, because – even, even in relative terms, I mean, there's the transient nature of everything and then there's the thing that's not transient. And what are we identifying with? Sure. I, we could say mind, period. Um, but it's often identified as my mind or right, my body right. to get to your question more directly. Like, yeah, if I'm resting with the breath, I'm thinking this is my physical sensation. Right. This is my body. This is my rising and falling of the belly. So, right. So but it's, it's, the it's dropping of past that. What hastens the loosening of the identification in the case of a mantra, not, the word not carrying meaning as part of that is to hasten this non-identification, how is similarly in the Buddhist, maybe non-mantra based, but I guess there's all that. No, I understand I, what you're saying. Yeah. So when how, it comes to the you, breath, how do you hasten the, the lack, the loosening of identification, the physical identification? Yeah. I do think that there's something about, uh, and it can take a long time. Yeah. Let me sort of preface this, that like, this is not the instant gratification. This isn't the quick fix of meditation. All of these studies that we were referencing earlier, these are people who've been meditating for months, right? Um, months isn't that long. I know. But I mean, for what we're talking <laughs> I'm about, sure. I'm going to say years. <laughs> right. Um, I have a mentor and a senior teacher in the Shambhala tradition who, after the millionth time he got this question, just got a little snippy. And someone said, how long until I actually, the meditation pays off? And he looks at her and goes, you? Three years. And goes on to the next question. <laughs> like we can just know, right? right, right. <laughs> I really like that. So similarly, how long does it – how do we hasten it? I don't know. But I, I think the idea, the view around it is that we're yeah. not thinking about the breath. We're not even I, – I will sometimes use the word focus, but it's not – it's actually relaxing. So it's similar to what Tom was saying before. 
there's some aspect of like getting out of our own way. So even when we're just feeling the breath, it drops past that idea of me and my thing and me trying to get to that point of deep relaxation right. or stress reduction or whatever right. to the point of, oh, I'm just actually with what's going on. Sometimes I'll guide people so that's not just – it's like 25% fo focusing on the breath and then there's also an environmental awareness. Mm. So that at some point they're like, oh, wait, this is, goes beyond just me and my thing. Mm. It's sort of a mind trick, for lack of a better word, to say, wait, it's not just this physical thing. There's actually much more. It's just reality. Can we just pay attention to reality for right. 10 minutes? Right. Um, I just want to – that was fabulous. I just <laughs> want to you. comment that last night at my introductory talk, a woman came to me afterwards and said, I'm just – I hear what you say, but I don't think I'll be able to meditate because I'm just kind of locked into my thinking constantly. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, what I will be teaching you is a technique to distract the mind into the no thinking place. Yeah. In other words, the techniques themselves are kind of like a trick. Yeah. They interrupt the process of thinking. They cause a distraction or an attraction. Either way, you want to look at that. It's all traction pulling, mm -hmm. and the mind Pro gets pulled in. It gets version. it gets pulled into a place where there is no object. So if you've got no object, then the possessiveness is gone. Then the ego is also gone because you've just got subject experiencing subject. You've got the you've got pure subjectivity experiencing itself for a moment. And by the way. That is bliss. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, you know, the after effect of that is whatever that was, I want more of that. But it's not an it. It's not a thing. Right. It is just the knower experiencing the knower. And that can happen in an instant, right? It can. It can. But yet we know that, like you just said, it can take years. But stabilizing it. Stabilizing it. Yeah. And so that's the, a whole other question. The thing that <laughs> inhibits it being stable, the thing that gets in the way of a prolonged experience. Uh, what do we call that? I mean, what is that thing that's getting in the way? Ego. Right? That's what, that's, <laughs> that's what we're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so the ego identifies and attaches itself to things, whether yeah. it's the breath mm -hmm. and the body or mm -hmm. it's the mind and mm -hmm. the meaning of the mantra. Yeah. You've had thousands of people initiated into meditating and mantra-based mm -hmm. mm -hmm used to transcend or however yes, you yes, talked about yes. um, has been a preferred or that's just your lineage yeah, right that's my and, lineage. It's and what I know best and breath for you mm -hmm. I, I'm assuming is a big part mm -hmm. of it can it be said that one works better than the other and if someone is just thinking about meditating why would they pick one or the other I, th um, I think my, my point matter? of view my point of view is there's no such thing as one working better than the other you know it's uh, it's a little bit like someone grows up eating you know Middle Eastern food and somebody else grows up eating Indian food and somebody else grows up eating pizzas in Chicago right. you know the you know these different things are you know everybody's living to a certain age and so on like that is a question of what are the cultural orientations that make it the easiest for you to actually come to this nourishing effect of this right. practice. You know, ultimately, it's not possible for a thing to be meditation and be, you know, the only way. There's no such thing as the only way. Uh, any great tradition will tell you that. However, you know, what is good is that people like Lodro and me, we specialize in certain ways that people find attractive. And the most important thing is that for somebody to actually get started on a thing, they should just get started. 
how long they stay on this specific path before they might move on to something else. I can remember my teacher once saying, somebody said, what's the effect of someone, you know, and they were saying this in a way they were hoping for a condemning answer. What's the effect of someone practicing this technique and then switching and mm. going to another practice, hoping he was going to say something negative? He said, the result of that is self-realization. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, switching, switching to another method is self-realization. Mm. He goes, why wouldn't you switch? If you find something that's, you know, if you stick with mm. this all the way, we know the effect. But if you find somewhere along the way that something else is more attractive, if it works better, go with that. Right. That was his approach to it. Sure. Yeah, it's a big world. We, we spend time here in New York and every mm. single walk of life and socioeconomic background, you mm. see it all. And it, it ceases to amaze me. All these meditation studios mm. and approaches and churches, synagogues, um, yeah. Kamala, whatever. I mean, growing up at some point, uh, I was handed a violin and they said, why don't you play the violin? And I did for a while and then I got bored and I didn't like it and I put it down. Mm. But I really do think if someone had said, hey, here, try the violin. Now try the guitar. Mm. Try the drums. Maybe I would have fallen in love with the mm. drums and been annoying my neighbors today. You know? Mm. Like it's distinctly possible that I would have stuck with it. Yeah. So I do think there is – I mean it's something like uh, this But your parents studio. when you were growing up weren't dabbling in different things. They had their one thing. They had their one thing. So as, as Tom said, we're specialists, right? Like we – found something that we really but I did I had my like I'm going to go explore Zen and I still sometimes go, go and explore Zen and it's different language around the same concepts within the Buddhist right. tradition I went and explored Judaism and, and Christianity and many other things but I kept coming home to come back to our word of the day uh, to to the Shambhala tradition I think part of it's the fact that there is such a heavy emphasis not on just the work that we've been talking about but also sort of showing up in society and trying to be of benefit which as a young person really spoke to me but I, I fully believe in, and and I feel bad that you are trying to be the provocative one, or you're supposed to be the provocative <laughs> one, because we agree on everything. It's really so hard on you. Um, that well, you know, it's it is this thing where it's right. like people have to try. The reason we have a mindful is that people could try a couple of different styles of meditation. Sure. And say, wait, I love Kundalini. I should yeah. go try that. Yeah. I should go deep with that. I love insight you know i should go do an insight retreat like we're just sort of the gateway drug for whatever they end up doing yeah, yeah excellent yeah and you know the tact i've decided to take is i just want the information for myself the illumination <laughs> here yeah, and yeah. so no, I appreciate that it. provokes it provokes if it doesn't <laughs> but one thing that arose in hearing both of you guys talk was this idea of it taking a long time and stabilizing and um, the inherent notion with that being that it's not instantly available mm -hmm. and that the fact that it may take time to either stabilize or acquire is in and of itself a reflection of some dualistic framework that you can't just be there now, right? And I think you can be. I you think can, you, can you, be. you can be, but uh, you're not trained to be. Uh -huh. So there's yeah. this trained idea that to not be here trained. now, right? Exactly. That's you know, so so, the mind. Yeah. so then it's it's a question of, so exactly, it's a question of uh, of a gentle daily dismantling of the beautiful of the of the counterproductive training that we've had all our lives, which is you know to hold on and you know construct an identity which basically is just a fake thing. Right, mm -hmm. right. Awesome. Well, I'm, 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 I'm enjoying the conversation. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to segue to a, a slightly different area, sure. and this actually was inspired partially by um, reading some of the books you've 
wrote, not reading the books, reading the titles of some of the books. <laughs> I was going to say you did your research, my God. <laughs> no, no. Just the, but I did listen to a podcast where you were at Google, right? Uh-huh. And there's that whole arena of meditation becoming all of a sudden popular in, mm-hmm. in culture, which mm-hmm. we I think we would probably all agree that that's a good thing, right? Meditation in some form or another has been on the cover of Time Magazine about five times in the last three years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it, it's not like it's the first time, you mm-hmm. know. We Wakenanda came in yeah. the 1900s. Mm-hmm. We had the 60s, 70s, you know. So, but there's a, I think, an acknowledged uh, appreciation for its value and so forth, and that leads to this idea that I'd like to just explore about the evolution of consciousness, if that's even possible. And that's probably not the right way to talk about it. Mm. But the idea that thought consciousness advancing beyond the way uh, popular consciousness and culture uh, are we seeing any kind of growth or advancement occurring maybe with meditation centers popping up that's a reflection of something that hasn't previously been there you can look at the advancement of technology you can look at the advancement of a millennial generation and a sharing economy as reflections of priorities that are different than environmental movements and so is there is there something to be said about an evolution that's taken place at a more macro level, whether we ta- call that an evolution of consciousness? I kind of hesitate to use that because consciousness is consciousness and there's no evolution of it. I, I can appreciate that. But in humanity, you know, I had sent you a map, uh, a picture of the 4,000 years of humanity, and it had this chart and it showed you know, these different lineages. And there's been the Rome, not just humanity, but civilizations that have risen and fallen, Byzantine and Roman and so forth. So, you know, humanity's been around for a while, and there's been all sorts of rising of civilizations and falling of civilizations. So how how broad of a of a view can we take to this topic is up to you guys. But coming back to now, are we living in something that's different? Or is this just another cycle? Want to give that a shot? Does this make sense? My view my view is that it is another cycle because that is all there is in terms of relativity. Um, from the absolute perspective, there's no cycle. From the relative world point of view, there's a constant cycling. And so this is bound to be another cycle. The real question is to be is how long is it? Mm-hmm. And, and what's the trend right now? Uh, my tradition makes statements about this that are very fascinating. Just to get specific, I come from and belong to the Shankaracharya tradition of North India. It was founded 2,500 years ago by Adi Shankara, who was someone who came after the Buddha in in terms of the time and history of India. The Shankaracharya tradition does an astrological assessment of the world, and right now we are in what's known as Kali Yuga, which is, you know, an age of ignorance. However, the lead age, right? Is exactly, something like that. Right. Yeah, you know, just to give it an idea that you know it's a, a materialistic. And how long um, is an age? An age. Well, supposedly, uh, supposedly Kali Yuga started five thousand years ago, and it's got another four hundred twenty-eight thousand years to go. <laughs> but so, and what precedes this age? And was what, was so, another called Dwapara Yuga, which you know was uh, twice as long as this, and then there's a previous one called Treta, which is three times as long as this, and then there's Sat Yuga, mm-hmm. towards which we're cycling again. But there's another four hundred twenty-eight thousand years to get back to Sat Yuga, which mm-hmm. is the age of absolute enlightenment. So you have these four ages. You have this four like ages, golden That's age, right. and then yeah. silver, and then, it, and, and then bronze, it, and now it, we're in the lead age. Exactly, and, and it's and, like a five hundred thousand year cycle. Mm-hmm. Something. Mm-hmm. 
like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so looking <laughs> at cycles. it from that perspective, uh, and I was just having a conversation with the uh, sitting, the current Shankaracharya of, uh, of India, who said that, he said two things that were fascinating. One is, it is unconditional that an age of enlightenment has begun within, within the age of ignorance. He said it's like a, a full moon coming up at nighttime. Mm-hmm. It's definitely night, mm-hmm. but a full moon is rising. And that full moon is in some ways more beautiful than even midday sun. And it's so clear that you can read books by it. And he said it's going to last 10,000 years. And he says it got started in the 1970s. And, mm-hmm. and you know, this is the dawn of so it. So a sliver of light and otherwise, yeah, you know, in darkness. Otherwise, and, <laughs> right? and he said that... And that first yuga would be the sun, daytime, noon. That's right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So he said that it's unconditional that it is happening. The question is how rough or how smooth will it be? Mm-hmm. You know, if there's a lot of holding on to materialism as the answer... If there's a whole lot of, you know, resistance to spiritual development, then it's going to be rough moving into an age of enlightenment. On the other hand, what we're doing, teaching meditation and helping people to relax into this more unbounded consciousness state and all the concomitant benefits of it, which should be very attractive to people really, is going to help make it a smoother transition. But the fact that it's happening is non-negotiable. That was his take. Then he said something else that I found interesting. He said, and you know, it's not actually linear time. The Satya Yuga place is the place deep inside you. The one that's slightly less evolved is the one that's the next layer up and so on. And the the surface layer of the mind is the Kali Yuga, you know, the place, the age of ignorance. That's Mm -hmm. the surface Mm -hmm. layer of the mind. So you can look at it vertically stacked or you can look at it linear. It's all the same. But there is a trend towards a deepening of human experience the question is, how rough or smooth will it be? And I believe that Lodro and I and all the other contributors to this phenomenon, we're like the lubricators who are out there making it easy for people rather than them having a tough time. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be attempts at, and you know, we may be seeing this politically, that there may not be attempts at taking a purely materialistic and separatist view of the world and once again trialing that. But the Age of Enlightenment philosophy would be that it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. It's just going to backfire because the overall trend is towards shared experience right. and, and growing communal enlightenment, community yeah. enlightenment. Well, that's, a, that's a great, great response. Thank you for that. So from, from where you said, Lodro, yeah. yeah, really anything. I mean, it is, this, I mean, this idea of whether it's at the super macro, you know, creations rise and fall or civilizations rise and fall or just you know in a real-time way and i think you're uniquely positioned given a your age how long you've been practicing and the books you've written that speak to a contemporariness of of society and how that can benefit from you know the spiritual practices mm-hmm. But I'm just curious on that macro view. Are we seeing a, a change, or is it cyclical, or whatever? It's is. I mean, these are really great questions. I, I think what Tom said is absolutely fascinating, and not so far from the traditional Buddhist point of view that that we would be what we would call the Dark Ages. It's often and it's so interesting. Like the descriptions around the Dark Ages that were written many, many, many you know generations ago include things like iron birds in the sky. They're like mm-hmm. oddly accurate yeah. about like 
what's actually ha- like mm-hmm. airplanes, you know, like iron birds in the sky yeah. and red faced people. Right. Like it's just, <laughs> it's really sort of interesting that they're like, and this is really the pit of the dark age, mm-hmm. you know, the slime and muck of the dark age. Is what they say they get very visceral in the imagery. Mm-hmm. And then of course, at some point, and it, I think it's, um, it's often discussed in a mo- very like moment in time, tipping point way that there is this rise of, spiritual compassionate warriors warriors in this case being people who are actually willing to sort of go to war on their own aggression and their own neurosis and confusion that then overpower the dark age and there's lots of beautiful depictions of this of like Mm -hmm. warriors in horseback but they're literally fighting against like the demons of ego so there is that sort of like macrocosm of belief how long until we all get to that point and these warriors rise up us being the warriors as well it doesn't say. But as in terms of, you know, just the evolution of these things, the things we do know are we have this timeline of 2,600 years within the Buddhist structure of this guy and this set of teachings and a break in sort of what should be emphasized. And then, you know, people going off to China and Japan and, and Korea and it becoming more Zen and going to Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka becoming Theravada and Buddhism going from India to Tibet, becoming Tibetan Buddhism. And the interesting thing is it meets the culture and then it shifts, which is why you now look at a Zen place and it has a very different look and feel and emphasis in certain aspects of the teachings and ways that practices are done than a Tibetan Buddhist place. It's just, it met the culture. I mean, Buddhism going to from India to Tibet, it's really, it took hundreds of years for it to actually even, probably for them to even say, oh, this is Buddhism in Tibet. We're now Tibetan Buddhism. <clears throat> so here we are. You know, in this, I can only speak as a specialist in the Buddhist world. We have people coming over as early as like the 30s and sort of like small, tiny communities of Tibetan Buddhism and other Buddhist communities coming over. Chinese Buddhists going to California. There's a whole evolution of this. But only, as you said, in the 60s and 70s did we start to really see these like large groups of Westerners get involved. And at what point is it now American Buddhism? Is Insight Meditation Society American Buddhism because Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield went and studied with all these teachers and brought those teachings back and established a giant community? Hmm. Maybe it is. Right. I, I mean, I would, I would have to ask them, is Shambhala, you know, stemming from the Tibetan Buddhist lineages of Kagyu and Nyingma now looking like its own thing? And how long until it is? Because if it's 50 years as opposed to several hundred years in these cycles that we've seen, I think we're at the baby stages of this. We really are. Like, we have to think larger than our lifetimes. So I, I imagine you would agree with me, Tom, that, like, the work that we do, yes, we're lubricating. But I, I think we're not going to be around to see the fruits of these labors. Like, we're such at this – in the same way that back in the 50s, it was weird for you to go to, for a run and to exercise, right? Like, that, fitness was right. not an important right. thing. Right. And now there's a soul cycle on this block right. and a blink. Yeah. And, you know, like literally on this block. So it's like, you know, it's it's really we throw a stone and this is just right. part of the culture. So I would like to think that we are at this birth seed of increased awareness, consciousness and care for these practices. But it, it's wonderful and it's exciting. And also it's really interesting that I won't be around to see what it becomes. Right. I, I think that I agree with all that, by the way. Well put. However, I think there's something to be said about it being so fun, Mm -hmm. being a pioneer, bringing something to a community that either doesn't want to know anything about it or a relatively small number of people, you know, thousands and millions is a small number of people who do want to know about it. 
It's a little bit akin to, you know, if you go for a walk pre-dawn and there are a few people out and maybe you're looking over the river and you see the sun rising and some person who's a stranger watching that sunrise with you, you have an instant camaraderie, uh, like, you know, sun, wow, you know, isn't it great? Yeah, you know, you don't even know this person, but you have camaraderie. Now, midday sun, noon, walking in Manhattan, everybody's out in the sun. If you were to walk up to somebody and go, wow, look at the sun, you know. (laughs) There's no instant camaraderie from that because everybody knows about it. The point being that I think when this is still something of the very few leading the many, there is a tremendous camaraderie and enjoyment in being a pioneer of something, Mm -hmm. which you can see a trend and you can, our imaginations are probably very inadequate for what's going to be happening. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that sometime, you know, past our lifetimes, certainly mine, I'm older than you, will be, you know, be a standard thing that kids learn to meditate at school, at all schools. You know, it'd be a standard thing that you learn meditation sometime before your adolescence. It'd be a standard thing that, you know, some of these concepts are, you know, have worked their way into the major religions and are actually being adopted by and taught by the major religions. Even perhaps they're attempting to own them now Mm -hmm. because that's historically what's happened. Mm -hmm. And I, I think all that's going to be happening one day, but for my money, I'm really enjoying being a pioneer. Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is wonderful. And one of the, the sound bites that runs through my mind is um, some t- a topic that I've found interesting, which is AI, artificial intelligence. Nick Bostrom is one of these guys who wrote this book called Super Intelligence. And then you have a lot of conversation these days going around about not only things like AI, but advancements in science, advancements in towards environmental problems. And so the question is, you know, the survival of the species, the survival of the planet, um, these larger topics. And so hopefully there'll be enough time to see these practices come to fruition. And in fact, is there maybe one of the, one of the reasons this age of enlightenment within this Kali Yuga are occurring, this lighted dark age, is in order to assist in this potential you know, dystopian thing that lies ahead. And maybe there there are some larger energies at play. But to advance the conversation a little bit in order to uh, to make this theoretical conversation practical to those that might be listening, in this day and age when we're confronted with all that we are confronted with, the digital addictions, right? You know, can we? how long can you go without picking up your phone? Those kinds mm-hmm. of things. And all the other pressures, whether it's being overwhelmed by the environment or political upheavals or just the everyday juggle of living, right? Mm -hmm. The practical antidotes, solutions, disciplines, practices that one can adopt in order to hold at bay the the impact that this transient existence has on us, this seemingly very real material force as a means of inhibiting our bigger connection to consciousness, awareness, our true self coming home. So what are what are some of those things? Clearly meditation would probably rank pretty high up there, <laughs> yes. but wanting to see if there's other things that can help us combat those that are in this attention economy, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone's everyone's competing for our attention. What can we do to strengthen ourselves? Mm-hmm. You want to give that a shot, Lodro? Sure. I mean, I think to get back to what we were talking about earlier, this sort of like mindfulness as now hit the sort of mainstream movement, 
everyone says, well, my version is that I mindfully run or I mindfully knit or something like that, which is, I mean, it's fine and good if you have a foundation of a practice that actually allows you to show up fully for those things, right? So I do think, as you said, this, everyone wants your attention, right? Whether it's a pop-up ad or a movie trailer or, or a notification, a notification email, right? email yeah. on your phone, and there's something always vying for your attention. So I think to get to our big topic of living with more intention and meaning, it's up to us where we actually want to place it. This is the kicking the dead horse of, yes, meditation is the way that we actually train where to place our attention, actually how to live with meaning and purpose, so that when we get off the meditation seat, we actually then go out into the world and continue it. We have this term meditation practice. So we are practicing then for the rest of our waking hours that we actually, in the mindfulness tradition, the Buddhist tradition, we would then be able to be present for a conversation, actually just authentically be here and I place my attention on it. I would authentically show up for just eating a meal. When my family member is distressed, I'm actually really there with them. So showing up more fully and authentically for both the pleasurable and the not-so-pleasurable, the actual painful parts of our life as well. But I think there is some element here of like applied mindfulness, we mm. could say. Yeah. That there's a conscious intentionality that says, hey, for this period of time while I'm at dinner, yes, I'm putting away my phone and I'm actually clearing the deck. And my intention is to show up and just be here and enjoy this time with this friend, family member, whoever it might be. And I think that sort of applied mindfulness is something that we can actually work toward the more we actually have a regular meditation practice. Yeah, applied mindfulness. In other words, giving your attention to what's in front of you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Pay attention so to simple. talking yet, to you instead of listening to your own thoughts and planning what you're going to say. That's exactly it. And I mean, Tom, as Tom pointed out, like we've habituated ourselves against all of this for so right. long that it is. We have to train to do it. Yeah. Words well, of wisdom from uh, I, I the think, Vedic tradition? Yes, I think that a fundamental scientific tenet that has been demonstrated beyond any reasonable doubt is that what makes the human condition survive is not its desire to survive. It's the fact that we are adaptive. To the extent that we are adaptive, we will survive. It's not the extent to which we try to survive that we'll survive. We have to actually be adaptive. Now, uh, I may not have told you this, but I studied neuroscience for many years, and I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. You know, of the from our Adam's apple up, we have 10 to 12 billion neurons. All of them are constantly in action. Sometimes people say, well, you only use 10% of your brain. Actually, your entire brain is being used all the time. But what's it being used for? I said this in my introductory lecture last night that studies show that we have between 60,000 and 100,000 thought events in a day. That's and all. <laughs> That's all. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, you could have 100,000 really dumb thoughts. Right. Or, but the same studies also show alarmingly that about uh, 98% of the thoughts that one has today are the same thoughts one had yesterday. So there's, on average, about a 2% originality in, in other words, adaptiveness mm -hmm. showing up. Uh, and there's just constant repetition of the known. And that is engaging the 10 to 12 billion neurons of the brain. And my way of talking about it is if you have an iPhone, you buy a brand new one. It seems to have massive memory. It has all kinds of wonderful capabilities. It's fast and speedy and the battery doesn't run out for days. Then within a few weeks, it's running slow and all of that. And what you don't realize is that you've opened all these apps and they're in the background constantly cranking in data that you may not That's even be looking analogy. at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And its computing power has been reduced down to 2%. Mm. 
of what it's in fact capable of, but it's got all these programs running inside of it. The human brain has all of these programs running, and they're just basically causing constant repetition of the same thoughts and the same feelings and the same emotions in the background all the time. And so when you meditate, one of the things that happens is, as you release the stresses in the body, the mind and the brain become free of those constant, ever-repeating phenomena. And that makes the mind That might not brain, even otherwise be noticed. Exactly. Just operating. It probably wouldn't be noticed. Right. Yeah. And the liberating of that neuronal mass I to... I love that. Liberating of the neuronal mass. Yeah. To, <laughs> that is great. You know, to interact with demands in an effective way. And so then, rather than us having to be simply... Which I agree, by the way, we do need to be... I loved your thing about, you know, just put the phone aside and you're... But rather than us having to say, well... I'm either going to put my limited attention here mm-hmm. or I'm going to put my limited attention there. How about just taking the attention and making it mm-hmm. massive so that, you know, your your brain's capacity for computing is phenomenal. And, in fact, you should be able to attend to 500 things simultaneously all with to the greatest effect. Is that advocating multitasking? Well, it's advocating true multitasking because what people call multitasking isn't multitasking. People Mm -hmm. think they're multitasking when they're crashing their cars because they're looking at their phones. They're not, in fact, multitasking. They're singular tasking, and they are staying open. Exactly. They've got, you know, 1% of their attention there and 5% there and, you know, 90% here and so on and so forth. But so what's true multitasking? Right? True multitasking would mean, we, would mean effective multitasking. So supposing there's a woman playing a piano. She's digesting food. She's playing Bach. She may be pregnant and gestating a baby and creating a new brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she's multitasking. Okay. Um, so you know, re- there's redefining a, the term, I guess. Yeah. You know, but it's all effective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the playing of the Bach doesn't stop her from producing a beautiful child in her belly and digesting her lunch. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, when you have to rob certain things of 100% but attention. Let's, let's, uh, for me, understand this. So, so one thing is the natural operation of the body, which yeah. you kind of lo- put into the the multi the tasks mm. right yeah but when it comes to intentionality can mm. you really give your attention and intention I to think, multiple things i think you can yeah. and i think we do you know if you have had not had a good night's sleep then the number of things to which you can attend simultaneously narrows down if you've had a fabulous night's sleep then the number of things to which you can put your attention effectively simultaneously has expanded and I think that it's important for us to realize that we are underusing our brain's attentional capacity, its bandwidth. And so I do agree that in terms of what we give value to, we need to have a greater and enriched and more selective attitude about what we're giving value to. But working on an idea that I can only pay attention to one thing at a time, I don't believe is true. I think you can pay attention to multiple things simultaneously, and we constantly are. Mm-hmm. It's a question of what are those things? What values are we placing on mm-hmm. them? And the second thing is what is the degree of consciousness we're allowing to be liberated? Right. And, you know, when the brain is very restricted, the number of things that you can effectively do are, are minimized. Right. Mm-hmm. Does this resonate for you? That it you does. Can, you can give your attention to a lot of things at one time if, yeah. you're, using prop- if you're doing it properly? I often, just because the people I work with are so new to meditation, just getting them to focus on one thing at a time is revolutionary, right? Because there isn't that expansion of consciousness and I would say awareness. Yeah, they're not there yet. They're not there yet. So they can't simultaneously, you know, pat their belly and rub their head, so to speak. But I, I do believe that is absolutely, it's absolutely possible to actually 
make, I mean, we would say expand our mindfulness into larger field. You know, Tom is saying sort of like expand our consciousness so that we could actually increase the percentage of our computing power. Mm. But it is, it's different language for the same thing. Okay. That we are through the practices of meditation, refining really the refining, tool, the, refining tool the tool that we could then apply to everyday life. That right. we're actually, it gets larger, our ability to actually, in my case, be mindful actually gets larger than just one thing. So yes, I could simultaneously, to go back to the previous analogy, be listening to you deeply and also tasting my food. We actually do something similar. We literally do this with like a events at Mindful where we bring in food, drink, tea, things like that, where we say, okay, we're going to stimulate real world conditions, turn to someone, meet them, and actually do a deep listening exercise where they have to simultaneously balance being present and not, as you said earlier, planning out what they're going to say when it's their turn or just getting lost in their own thoughts, but actually be there for the person and enjoy their food or enjoy their drink or whatever it might be. Excellent. And it's it's an experiment for them to actually be able to, as you would say, multitask, mm. but essentially do two things well. Yeah. Mm. It's the well part. And yeah. the other part of this, of course, with which I'm sure both of you will agree, if it turns out that I'm with another human being, but somehow because of my value system, I find what's appearing on Instagram more fascinating than the human being I'm sitting with, who's got an amazing story, because every human being does, then there is an aberration in my value system. And, you know, that's going to be a downfall on its own. So it's, what I'm not saying is that you should be able to look at Instagram and pay attention to your grandmother at the same time. It's a question of what are the elements that you're selecting inside the bandwidth? Mm -hmm. You know, you want to broaden the bandwidth, certainly. But right, then, that's a refinement. But then you're, but but then you know, you're the value of what you're putting in that bandwidth. You know, is it like some facile thing in there and another facile thing in there, and so on and so forth, or are all the things that are inside this ever-growing bandwidth actually valuable? And I think that as you continue to consciously grow and intentionally grow your conscious capacity with meditation, there's the plug. That you know, you you're going to find that that as you add value to each of the things that are appearing inside your existing bandwidth, your functional bandwidth, it's the, the fact that they're all valuable. The tasting of the food while listening to the conversation is all valuable. So there's not like a so whole lot of junk in depth, inside there. depth of experience is what, what's occurring, right. yeah. that you have a greater appreciation and for whatever is in front of you. Yeah. And that, that level of appreciation is what's expanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and just to spend a little bit more time on this, because I think this is valuable to anybody that might be listening and interested in, you know, how does this stuff work in practical real time, mm -hmm. right? So yes, there is the meditation practice. There's living mindfully in all the different ways we do live. But maybe let's like drill down a little further. You know, I, I'm exposed to people who will share stories about their New York City subway experiences. Mm -hmm. And if you're dealing with people coming into your studios or into your meditation classes, you might hear very similar things. The agitation that may arise, someone's got their music on, someone pushed me, whatever the various things might be. But let's even expand beyond that. When we're confronted with some sort of negativity, mm -hmm spouse, boss, uh, whatever it might be, what specific remedies would you uh, recommend as far as practices to practice? Recognizing that meditation cultivates the foundation, the home base, if you will. But aside from meditation, what, what recommendations would you offer to somebody who is plagued by 
either negative environments or self-imposed negativity that they fuel unconsciously. What's the what's the recommendation that they can take away? What do you think, Lodro? You know, as you were speaking, I, I just was reminded of this book. Uh, Sung San was a Korean Zen master who, back in the 70s, would have people typewrite letters to him and he would respond. And they, thank goodness, kept them and they compiled them into this beautiful book. And there is this beautiful situation. So it's, it's somehow like real life advice from a Zen master, which is more That'd often be great. It's, it's yeah it's really quite lovely yeah. yeah and one was oh you know i'm planning my wedding and my parents are just you know they're ruining everything with their negativity and their ideas of how it should be but it's my wedding and how should i plan and it's you know it's korean zen master is like so sharp and basically it's just like you have your opinions they have their opinions if you let go of your opinions there is no problem <laughs> you know and i love that which isn't to say that we don't take care of ourselves in the midst of like mm -hmm. make sure that we don't get kicked by the person dancing on on the subway or something, right. right? But there is some element of like, oh, this is what's going on in reality right now. Am I able to relax into reality as it is? Yeah. Or do I need to hold on to all of my opinions of how I think things should be mm. or how they used to be right. or how I wanted them to be? Expectations. These yeah. expectations are the things that cause us heartbreak. And I really believe that across the board. You know, when we are in a romantic situation that falls apart, it's because we thought we would continue to be with that person. That expectation is no longer met. When we lose someone because they pass away, it's the expectation that this person would have been in our life for so many more years, and then that's dashed. So it's these expectations we hold, and that's what boxes us in. It's what boxes us in when we talk about love. We have this idea that this person does these services for me, and that's my romantic relationship to them. And then when they don't do those services for me, then I'm disappointed because they're not met. So there's lots of ways that we box ourselves in with fixed expectations and opinions. Again, I do think that there is some element here of like we have to balance this loosening of our expectations, relaxing into reality as it is with not like being a doormat, right? We do sometimes as a result of being with reality, notice things that we need to do. If I may, I, I'm reminded of a story from when I was living at a Buddhist center in Vermont called Karma Chowling. It's 18 years old. I was living there, meditating for a summer. And there was this conflict that happened where the chef, the head chef, was cooking for several hundred people, didn't have the bandwidth for it. And the head gardener was equally as busy and they didn't see eye to eye. And it really came to a head one day when the head gardener walked in and I'm not a chef, so I don't realize how big a faux pas this is, but I've heard since that you, he put the tomatoes, the box of tomatoes down in the middle of someone's cooking station. And this turns and he walks out and the head chef, this was the last straw. And he grabs the box and he walks out to the back porch and he throws them and they go everywhere. And the gardener turns around and they meet eyes and they're in this moment of complete conflict and it, everything stops. Everyone is all of a sudden, this is what's going on in this silent Buddhist retreat center. And then the head gardener turns around and storms off and the head chef turns around and slams the door behind him in the kitchen. And in that moment, expectations arose, opinions arose. People said, we need to get them into mediation. That chef is bad news. He needs to be fired. All of these ideas. And there is one woman who is on retreat there who was 16, 17 years old, she righted the box and she started picking up the tomatoes one by one and just putting them back in the box. And then she set it aside and that was it. And that actually was the most skillful thing that needed to happen in that moment. Hmm. So I think there is something about when I say dropping to reality as it is, it means that we could actually act skillfully because hmm. we understand what needs to happen. So there's this balancing of so relaxing. So principle of you can still um, 
be, so it all requires a certain level of mindfulness to catch the expectation in play because a lot of times we're operating out of expectations, out of ignorance, non-awareness. Yeah, I think this gets to what Tom is saying with multitasking, though, because it's not just like I'm mindful of the feeling of me sitting on the ground and this thing's playing out. There's something bigger than that. There's actually some sense of I'm sitting here on the ground and in my body right, and but, there's a But the context here was some negative something. Exactly. And in that negative subway relationship, you know, food delivery, we forget and we don't see the expectations in operation. We're just operating out of mechanical... We're reacting. We're reacting, yeah. right? Reliving whatever past things. So to catch ourselves, one of the things that you're talking about is be mindful of expectations, right? Absolutely. And then there's a principle of operating skillfully, right? There's, you can remember this principle that no matter what's happening that's crappy, you can always operate skillfully, and that can awaken something in the mind. When asked about is that, is that right? Yeah. Or? When asked about this concept of karma, which is so big and so vast, uh, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche said, "Everything is predetermined until now," <laughs> <laughs> which I love. <laughs> yeah. Right? And it's that notion of like, yes, we have the habitual it's a fresh impulse. Moment. Everything is fresh. Everything right? is fresh, and now mm-hmm. we can do something dramatically different than what That's we did in the past. That's great. Yeah. So, Tom, for you, confronted by some negativity and. Although we practice meditation and we're in a, this kind of a dialogue, I'm sure we all will have in our own experiences something that might arise that creates some agitation, whether it's negativity or otherwise. What specific recommendations, what Lodro was talking about was be mindful of the expectations we hold, loosen up there, and then bring a skillfulness to one's life as a principle, which I think are highly practical things to walk away from what what would you offer to that mix i think you know to whatever extent and i'm saying this as you know in quotes as someone who is a meditator could be practicing with this and this is outside their eyes closed uh sittings to deal exactly with the situations that you're envisaging the arena of me is not just inside this body the arena of me is the whole kitchen the gardener the chef and everybody this is all myself And I'm interested in, I actually want to cultivate an interest in what it feels like to be that chef, what it feels like to be that gardener. I want to be skillful and, you know, remove the ink as it were. You know, I got ink on my finger, so rather than cutting the finger off, I remove the ink and leave the finger intact. You know, that was basic skill in action. But not only that. I think that one thing that will aid in that enormously is to actually develop an interest in what somebody else's, what's it like to be them? What's Mm. their experience? And we call that empathy, even though we misuse that word and often try to make it sound like it means sympathy, but it Mm -hmm. doesn't mean sympathy. It means to experience from within the other. So hard to do when you're pissed off. It's so so hard. (laughs) Someone pushes you and you like get irritated. And because it's hard to do. How do you remember that? And in fact, you know, the best martial artists will tell you that you cannot be a master martial artist until you feel yourself being the one who's pushing. Right. Mm. You know, if you're the one who's being pushed, you're going to be a poor responder to what's needed. So it may be that when I feel what's going on inside me, it won't rule out the potential for me to, me as an individual now, to bring something disciplinary. It may not rule out the possibility of me bringing something absolutely loving. Right. It may not rule out the possibility of me pick, picking up the tomatoes. Right. 
But unless I can actually experience the self as something larger than just this little thing inside this head and body, and I've got to, got I've got to shrink and hide, I need to actually experience the self as big. And right. let's see to the extent to which it may be that you discover when you do that experiment that, well, to no extent. Right. Um, you know, I have to shrink into a corner here and wait for this to finish, and I'm just not going to be part of it. But at least there's some level of awareness on that, and that's the and beginning. It, that's where we start. And it may be it. that you pass the exam with a higher mark each time you try it. But if you don't try it, if you don't have this willingness to for the self to be everything, because self is not this little thing inside sure. this little you know sure. meat box. So your uh, your your, your uh, recommendation is to expand expand the point of view. Mm-hmm to whatever extent that's possible, mm. and further to look, have interest, yeah. have interest, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, cultivate an cultivate interest. Cultivate an interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like on both accounts, it, there's a, some level of prerequisite of being aware of the mm-hmm. condition, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. There's a, an Indian philosopher, Pantajali, is mm-hmm. that how you say Patanjali. it? Patanjali. Patanjali, I always mm-hmm. mispronounce that. That's all Patanjali. right, everybody does. Patanjali. <laughs> From now on, I'll remember it. Um, he would talk about, because we're talking about how to, how to deal with negativity when it happens, mm-hmm. and one of his sutras would be, the tail end of it would be, the fruit of negative feelings is endless ignorance mm-hmm. and suffering. Mm-hmm. And the solution to it would be to cultivate the opposite. Mm-hmm. So what, would, what might that might mean, what that might mean, is to simply bring this principle to mind when confronted with some negativity. Mm-hmm. As an example, you know, someone pushes you in the subway or your boss or your wife says something that's annoying. Remembering the principle in and of itself stimulates reason in the mind. Yeah. And then there's there's some space and there's the potential for whatever that is bothering you to have a little less of a hold, right? Just wanting to add to the mix, to yeah. the toolbox that somebody might be putting together and listening to this this podcast. So... Are we ready? Can we keep going? You guys all right? Yeah, we're good. (laughs) So to get more into the practical, right? Because we want to speak to the choir, but we also want to speak to others who might not be advocates or devotees or practitioners. And um, one of the things that I know in my life, in this life, in my experiences, there's been a lot of agitation since the election. Mm-hmm. Right, and to whatever extent you're in the world, you pick up on that, and you see things, and you feel things, and you hear people talk about it, and people ask questions, how to deal with it, how to deal with the negativity and the powerlessness, mm-hmm. and I think it could be helpful to hear how you guys think about that. Now we can bring the super macro point of view about we're living in yugas. This is a dark age, sure. and there's this blip of age of enlightenment within that, and this is part of that play but nevertheless it's a practical real world challenge that people are struggling with mm-hmm. they become addicted to news feeds and so forth so whatever you might have to offer in that regard would be great and i know this is not like coming from the place of setting up conflict between Vedic and buddhist which you know there in was fact, this there objective is, there isn't to the conflict so. right <laughs> i was know. gonna say i know it's really hard you're, to you're do tasked that, with a hard but, purpose yeah. but still I'm trying to find some conflict to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about where we're at yeah. and what can we yes. do about it. I'm empathizing yeah. right now. I, I I'm feeling it. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I do think that there is, you know, 
as we were talking before, on the absolute level, there's complete egolessness and emptiness. And on the relative level, you have to go to work on Monday. Otherwise, you can't pay rent. Um, so right. there is, there is. Yeah. I think this is. It's good that we're that we go into sort of the nitty gritty of the real world, where it does feel like many people are looking to develop empathy during this time, trying to understand people who are very much across the aisle from them. Some people are just reacting and, and perpetuating their own fear and anxiety. That's another way that things are manifesting right now. But I, I do think that at this time, this idea of understanding is so important. And people are saying, oh, love Trump's hate. You know, this is mm -hmm. like something that we see in news feeds and um, emails and things like that. But uh, the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh once said, understanding is the other name of love. And if you can't understand, you can't love. So I think this is a really beautiful opportunity for us to try to understand people that we do not agree with. Mm. And it's hard, as you said, to move beyond just the strong emotional element. So I do think, okay, let's get practical. I do think there's a lot of work that we need to do on a regular basis of learning to be with the energy of our emotions without perpetuating them. And the way that we perpetuate some of the strong emotions, it's a little bit like if we have a fire burning, the fire burns and at some point goes out unless we keep adding fuel to it mm. so the way that we add fuel to our strong emotions is we spin out a lot of storylines if we are upset about our colleague at work we could sit down and even in meditation we'll be sitting there saying oh you know what i'm going to say to them is this i'm going to really prove myself right and that's just perpetuating the aggression towards this human being what you give your attention to grows mm. in that case it's this aggression and this sort of storyline around the human being Whereas the in both of these forms of practice, whether it's mindfulness of the breath, transcending the mantra, there is something about like just coming back to actually what's going on right now, letting that storyline go to the extent that the emotion might burn out a little bit more quickly. And that's it's emotions are wonderful. I should be very clear. I think feeling anger or feeling love or joy or whatever it is is wonderful until it gets its hooks in us. And we have a term called shenpa. Uh, which is afflictive emotions. Uh, sorry, that's klesha is afflictive emotions, but shempa is when the emotions get their hooks into us. And it's this very interesting dynamic where instead of just feeling the emotion, we make it bigger and solid and real. Mm. And then we feel like we need to do something. We need to fix something. We need to change something. And that's where we become less skillful. So if we can actually learn to stay with the energy of the emotion itself, we actually learn to approach these very real-world problems, whether it is a work colleague or feeling overwhelmed by the news from a place of compassion, understanding, and empathy. Oh, beautiful. Uh, very practical, too. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking about it a lot, as yeah, you can imagine. Yeah, sure. Because this it's is a very real, real for many of us. And, yeah. You know, there's this writer, Charles Eisenstein. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. And he talked about and this was helpful to me in this dialogue, about whatever propelled people to go one way and vote for Trump was coming from a certain place. There was a movement that might have had a lot of fear at its base. And the reaction that we're seeing and feeling in opposition to him being in office is also coming from a place of fear for, from a lot of people. The foundation of the fear on one side and the foundation of the fear on the other side has a there's a there's a unity there to That's be true. discovered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. There's there's something there that we're all in this together, and it can open up the heart and the empathy to see that 
everyone really wants to see something better happen in the world. And and it could be that change was going to happen anyway, and it's just being hastened. And there's an opportunity in front of us to envision something better and more in keeping with what you had said, this mm-hmm. this age of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And so that's the opportunity in front of us and to put our minds there. But, Tom, if there's anything you have to offer on this I, topic. I think that, you know, what we have decided to believe in is to me false, that somehow a leader is in fact individually the instigator of some massive kind of change, either way, whether it's conservative or liberal or whatever. I believe that whatever is going on there in terms of the leadership is simply a product of a collective. Mm -hmm. So there's a collective that finds somebody who's an innocent mirror of whatever it is that they largely believe in. Do they have to be innocent? Well, I say innocent in the sense of, you know, willing, willing, but, you know, on their own, not capable of getting into that spot in the in the Casablanca, the White House. Um, (laughs) And so I don't really think that who's in the White House in the Casablanca actually is the leader. I think that there's a collective that's leading. And one of the harking back to Maharishi Patanjali, when asked by one of his students what the greatest impediment to enlightenment was, he gave a surprising answer, shantosha, contentedness, contentment. Mm. And what it means, what he meant was, and that was surprising to the student to hear, because what he really meant was that you have far too early decided to be content with the status that you're in. And I think that what's happening right now politically in the United States is that people who were content that United States was a particular thing have suddenly discovered that they popped the cork on the champagne too early. Mm, that, you know, yeah. 65 million people voted for Mr. Trump. And, you know, whatever the controversies are about the popular vote right. and so on, right. there was, those 65 million people were not going to go away if Mrs. Clinton had been elected. Right. There were still 65 million people who thought that way. And, you know, what's necessary now is to regard what's happened as great information. It's a great opportunity for everybody to decide what they are and who they are in contrast with what they're experiencing. And so, you know, there wouldn't have been a women's march if Mrs. Clinton had won the election. Mm-hmm. There wouldn't have been people forming together in groups to be vigilant about which of the American institutions needs to be cherished and kept in place. There wouldn't have been that much attention on the news. Interestingly to me, I think that the contentedness of the populace uh, that's now had this big kind of alarm bell go through it, it has been an awakening. Yeah. And it's all, as far as I'm concerned, it is a product of an awakening. What I'm seeing in the United States right now is no sleepiness. Yeah. There's an awakening that's happened. Everybody's alert. The conservatives are alert and the liberals are alert. Right. Everybody's alert, and I'm all in favor of alertness. I like people being awake. Yeah. You know, everyone's woken up, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so then the next question is, how are these two in the big divide, how are they going to educate each other? Mm-hmm. Because we can't take a position that those 65 million are all idiots and they don't have a point. And, you know, these 68 million who voted for Mrs. Clinton are, you know, more that they are idiots and they don't have a point. If there's not an, op- an opportunity advance of empathy of, you know, 
what is it that, as you put it, that is in common about what we don't want to happen and what we do want to happen? There's an opportunity here for co-education to occur, and it will. I believe that it will. I think that right now what we're experiencing is a very sharp contrast. There's a sudden realization of what it is that actually makes up the American populace and the consciousness state of the American populace and what that average is. We don't like what the average looks like when it's individuated into a specific mm -hmm. person. Some people don't like that. Some people love it. But what we, what we are now able to do is to begin empathizing with each other and try to feel what it feels like to be those people. And for whoever those people are, whether the listener to this is a conservative or a liberal, you know, to try to feel what it feels like to be these other people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's the and, opportunity. And that, you know, that's the opportunity right now. Everybody's awake and alert. And this is what we need to get on with because we've done the Civil War. We did that 130 <laughs> or 40 years ago. That didn't work. You know, that killed 5 million Americans. You know, so rather than going back to something that's been tried already, why don't we try empathy? I think that, you know, as much as people are out there, you know, hating the haters and hating those who are the lovers of the haters and all of that, <laughs> you know, it's, it's all just, you know, this concept of, you know, getting into a hating competition is right. not the answer. Absolutely. And, that, that's, and th that's a sound that mm. needs to be out there mm. and amplified. Mm. Right, because it's very easy to go down the paths of mm. narrowness and hate and yeah. self -re self righteous recrimination. Right, yeah. it's very mm -hmm. easy to go there, and mm -hmm. that just fuels mm -hmm. um, the division. Mm -hmm. So that's very well said and really appreciated. I think that not to not to wrap things up, but to on the on the thread of practicality, it would be great, selfishly speaking, to hear from each of you things that you might recommend in certain buckets, right? And um, I would just ask that if you can make these recommendations for somebody that is just beginning to be interested in mindfulness or meditation, and as well as a recommendation that might be applicable to somebody who is more further along and experienced. And the areas that I'm looking for your if, if you have any recommendations, are specific practices other than meditation that you would recommend. And then books, if there's any kind of written material. And these days that can include websites that you might point people to. And then to others, uh, community. I think community is a, an important part of this kind of work. And if there's anything in that arena, a spiritual community or otherwise, that might be of a, a, a value to people interested in this arena. And then what we call service, I think, opportunities for volunteering, mm. however that works for you or doesn't work for you. But what would somebody be able to do if they have that impulse? Where should they look towards? So on each of these areas, practices, books, community, and service, something that is applicable to somebody on the front end of their journey or if there's even such a thing as a front end of a journey. And then those who have maybe been in this for a while. Lodor, you want to give it a shot? And sure. We'll kind of like... Do you want to go 1-1 one, one and then two, You know, two, whatever one. comes to All mind. Right. I mean, I, I know it's a little prescribed. I don't mean it to be so... No, it's way, fine. I, I mean, practices other than meditation. I don't know, more meditation? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think that... Um, Jokes aside, I do. I do. That's my honest answer. Like to say, okay, I'm gonna try and actually be open-minded to understanding not just 
people I don't get along with, other forms of meditation, other forms of religious and spiritual endeavors. I think even, you know, for people who are listening to this, they clearly have an interest in seeing how to expand their worldview. And I, th I think that's really important. So looking for ways to do that, whether it is a new form of meditation or if it is a, you know, going to a service, going to, I mean, there's so many like sort of meditation and gatherings, you know, sort of different ways that people are pairing this so that there is, and this is jumping ahead to your sense of community, there is a sense of community and support for your work. And I think that's very important. Uh, for books, you know, I... Uh, my guru is Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, and he's written a number of books, including Turning the Mind into an Ally, which I think is such a beautifully named book mm. that we could actually, I mean, it's a, it's sort of like Meditation 101, but also What to Do When You Get Stuck with Meditation book. But it's this sense that over the course of meditating that we could actually befriend ourselves, which is such a beautiful idea. I often always recommend like uh, Susan Piver's Start Here Now for someone who is brand new to meditation, similar to just launching a practice. And then sort of like mentally going through my like recommendation list. You well, maybe you bake on that. Maybe yeah. Tom, Tom, there's something, some, some things you would want to offer up. Like what he said. And <laughs> <laughs> I'll just add a few things to what yeah, he said. Sure. A few arrows into the quiver. I think that we as meditators need to be seen as people who are broad-minded. I think we need to more broadly educate ourselves because we're not the only people in the world as meditators who are thinking of consciousness mm -hmm. as a cosmic field. So, mm -hmm. for example, reading the writings of great physicists, uh, Paul Davies, in my opinion, is one of the better writers on the subjects of consciousness and astrophysics. He has a colleague by the name of John Gribben, G-R-I-B-B-E-N, Gribben, who wrote a book in the beginning semicolon, the birth of the living universe. Mm. Gribben is not a fringy scientist. He is sits on the review boards of major scientific journals, an uh, Oxford astrophysicist. Mm. And the reason why I recommend people read books outside the realm of meditation is that instead of continuously, in addition to reading, you know, from within their own traditions and expanding their knowledge and interest in what they're doing, is that I do believe in the, the individual meditator has a responsibility when asked a question to be able to give an answer which is educational if there's worthy inquiry. Mm. If there's an inquiry that's worthy, not to just sound as though one is a kind of, you know, that all I know is inside this realm, inside mm -hmm. my tradition. And so to be able to quote a little more widely, one has to make a point of becoming a more educated than simply my own tradition kind of person. Excellent. One more thing, I think, is then to develop a curiosity as to, for example, if you're a mindful meditator, how did Lodro get to be the knowledgeable guy that he is and know all those names and all those people? How did Tom get to be who he is? What did he do? What did he do? You know, who are these people who have become the more informed members of the meditation community and develop a, an interest in having a deeper intellectual understanding of your own personal experience in meditation by virtue of being able to phrase it in ways that are multidimensional, you know, within my tradition. to the audience. Exactly. And so then I do believe also, finally, that very often meditation is, I'd say invariably, meditation is bringing us a basket of benefits many of which we are resisting. We're resisting the effect that it's already bringing. 
It's bringing positive benefits and impact into our lives. And we might be, in many areas, resisting what it's doing for us. Mm. And so one of the things that a greater intellectual curiosity will cure is to get an understanding of where it is that meditation is actually taking you beyond, you know, pumping the pedals on your bicycle faster, developing an interest in that and becoming informed about it so that you can minimize the extent to which you're resisting the effect that it's having on you because it's likely to be having a far greater effect that you could harvest if you simply stopped resisting the effect. Excellent, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's so much resistance, and it's uh, so deeply ingrained Mm -hmm. that it's an interesting thing that can occur that somebody will demonstrate some interest in this at all, Mm -hmm. right? At any level, Mm -hmm. right? And so that when that does occur... However it may have happened, that good impulse is then fueled and nurtured and can turn into a a more dedicated practice. So back to the very initial kind of uh, thing posited about, you know, what what does an authentic life mean? You know, people want to live authentically. And I was just speaking to a young lady who was like, you know, I don't know what I inherited – as belief system versus what I really truly believe myself. Mm. And so wanting to figure out that journey for herself in a, in a completely real way versus an inherited way. And so this topic of intentional living or living authentically, what can we say about that? And and I would just add one element to that that I haven't spoken to in this element of mystery because we've talked about this in a certain clinical way, maybe, you know, like we know it all. And there is this, at least from where I sit, and there is an element of grace or mystery that might be part of this experience. Mm -hmm. And we haven't really talked about that. And I don't want it to come across as a prescribed kind of templatic thing. So your feedback, your comments on what it means to live authentically and how mystery plays into that, Mm -hmm. if, if that resonates for you. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there's something oddly prescriptive about what we've been saying so far where we're, we're really yeah. saying, you know, <laughs> meditate, and then you see these sorts of things happen, and um, here's some practical advice for these scenarios. But there is something, I mean, all of this is this is more art than science. and The art um, of living, you can say, right? Yeah, it is. It is. It's the art of, or even, you know, based on our conversation around politics a minute ago you know even just the art of being decent or you know the art of having living with an open heart or something yeah something larger than just getting through it you know and and this ties in to what you were asking about before that i do think in addition to reading books and practicing on your own there is something beautiful about being in community and that could be a community where there is a trained and certified teacher that you work with which i think is really quite important particularly in this world where there's a lot of people who sort of do one weekend workshop and then say that they're a teacher so actually working with people who really know and have a tradition behind them i think is really important and that isn't always going to be the one person who is high up and who you always go to there's there's the idea of uh, what we say in the buddhist world kalyanamitra spiritual friend someone that's a little bit further down the path than you that you can actually, that will advise you because they were just there. They were where you were. And I think these sorts of relationships are really helpful. I mean, this is what we built Mindful around, that there would be so many Kalyanamitras. So there would be people who would say, I see you're coming here a lot, and they actually start working with you one-on-one a little bit. And 
they make sure that you are sitting properly and that you are doing the practice as well. And you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with people who are going through the same experience with you, both the beautiful and the not so beautiful parts of it, because it's hard work. Mm. So I think that sense of community is really quite important in develop. I mean, you could say the mystery or the art of it, but there's something organic that happens when we have these conversations that stirs up and makes these teachings real to us. So I think having other people to relate to is important. And then the service element that you also mentioned, you know, I, I don't want us to neglect that because it is important that we live a life of meaning and that that also, as my teacher says, if you want to be miserable, think only of yourself. And if you want to be happy, think of others. And I think there is something, particularly when I get lost in my own head, that I say, oh, wait, who's right in front of me that I actually can authentically connect to? Or what can I do that's actually of service to others? And that makes me feel uplifted. So there's the selfish element, sure. But it also it means that we are contributing to society. And I think sometimes when we have these big political discussions, we think, oh, it's me and what can I ever do? And I voted and it didn't even work or I marched and it doesn't feel like it's doing anything. There's something about uh, Robert Kennedy gave this beautiful talk many years ago about throwing a stone in a pool of water so we don't really see where the ripples go. Some we see and some we don't. And I think that's how society is created, that society is the three of us sitting down for a few hours and having authentic conversation. And then this, I mean, by the nature of it being recorded and being sent out to people, it has a ripple effect. Ideally, other people then feel motivated to practice, motivated to connect authentically with others and live a life of meaning. I mean, this is a very specific example. When I go and I lead a class after this at Mindful, it's, you know, 22 people in a room with me and I either show up and I'm not really there for them and that sends out one particular thing and maybe they aren't inspired to practice because who's this schmuck? Well, I am there and I'm actually showing up and I'm trying to be of service to them and ideally that has a ripple effect. So whether it's volunteering our time at charities that we feel very good about, volunteering our funds or being there for just someone who is in pain and suffering, whether it's providing sanctuary communities, whatever it might be, there's ways that we could actually just as individuals impact our smaller societies. And I really do believe that impacts society overall. It has a ripple. Absolutely. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Hmm. Well, I would just add one thing, and that is I loved your uh, concept of the, you know, not necessarily the, you know, the supreme guru is not the only one from whom you can get knowledge, but also someone who's a little ahead of you on the path who acts as a mentor. Then, you know, also look for opportunities to be that to somebody. Yeah. I, I alluded earlier to, um, which sounded like merely an analogy, and it was actually a real thing, a professor of literature who learned ABC first, and she was a professor of literature at the University of Sydney, uh, who became one of my students years ago, and she told me the story in detail. So there she is at home, and she's five, and her brother comes home from school, and he's been to school for the first time and he sits her down and he says, Margie, I'm going to teach you something. It's very important. You have to listen and you listen carefully. Are you ready? Because this is what I learned at school and this is what you'll be learning at school. She sat down very attentive and he said, now look in my eyes and be very careful. Pay only attention to me. I want you to say this, A. And she says, A. He goes, good. Say it again. A. A, she says. He goes, very good. She goes, what comes next? He goes, I'll tell you tomorrow. <laughs> he hadn't learned B yet. <laughs> you know? So I think that you know when we've when we've learned A, start teaching A to somebody. Right. Find somebody who's willing to learn at least A from you. You know, sometimes people feel as though 
I can't dare volunteer what I know because I'm not the professor of literature yet. But if you have A and B and C, you've got that much that somebody else may not have. Beautiful. And I think that the earlier we get into the habit of allowing ourselves to be a teacher and just, you know, a little bit of uh, research into what it feels like to just teach a little bit. You don't have to know everything. Then the quicker we're going to have larger and larger groups of people who are willing to share what they know so far. And, you know, we don't need to lay claim to knowing everything ever. Anything. But anything. (laughs) But what we do find that could be helpful it's time for us to share that. Mm. Yeah, that's huge. Mm. Absolutely. Right? It's, it's easy to be caught up in the idea yeah. of like, mm-hmm. what do I know? Yeah. Do mm-hmm. I know enough? And just, the professor said that, you know, the initiation of her into her, her role as professor of literature at a major university was her brother mm. who came home from kindergarten and taught her A. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she, he was the start. Awesome. Well, speaking of kindergarten, so I've mentioned I have the six-year-old, and he's been struggling with swimming. He's taken some swimming lessons, and he's doing it, but, you know, not can go a couple feet and then, you know, has to put his feet down, right? Mm -hmm. So he's not quite getting it. So the other Sunday, we're in the pool at a local YMCA, and he's got his goggles on, and I have my goggles on. I'm underwater watching this with him and just playing. And he has his lessons, and then he's got his father-son kind of playing in the water time. And so we're playing, and, and I'm watching something unfold in front of me where he, on his own, is putting his head underwater, getting back up. He's, he's in this moment experiencing something, and all of a sudden he goes under again and starts to swim underwater. And you can see his eyes open up, and he has this experience of swimming, that moment where it clicked, Mm. right? And I was there seeing that full moment Mm. click. And so that in and of itself, that I wasn't like, well, come on, Zach, we got to go get out of the water, you know, like (laughs) throw the ball. I was there with it and had the benefit of Mm. that experience, both for myself here Mm. and also for him, the recognition and the Mm. unity that was was we were able to share together. But later on, I asked him, so what happened, Zach? How, how did that happen? You know, that all of a sudden it seemed to have clicked for you. Well, I, I just stopped thinking, Yeah. right? Mm. I just stopped. This is a six-year-old, right? Yeah. So mm. really, uh, beauty is all around us, and mm. it's for us to wake up, mm. right? And whatever we can do to do that is uh, worth it, mm. right? Uh, is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Is there anything <laughs> on your minds? Is that, I, I feel like we've covered a lot of territory. Um <laughs> If you want to kind of give your, like, plug or whatever about what you do or, you know, you're, or you the same. That plug is maybe, I don't, I don't mean to say it that way, but yeah. you had a better way of talking about that. Um, yeah. I can't remember what that was, but I'll certainly give a plug. <laughs> um, uh, my name typed in online is all you need, Tom Knowles, and both those names are spelled unusually T-H-O-M. Tom and K N O L E S Knowles and type it in and anything you need to know about the kind of meditation I teach will come up. So Lodro, your background or whatever you care to share about contact info and so forth. Sure. I am very easy to find. Just looking up lodrorinsler.com. So L O D R O R I N Z is in zebra L E R. And then of course I'm found at Mindful Studios across New York and on Mindful Video, which is our video channel as well. Wow, excellent. And while I don't have the .com, you can, if you want, reach out to me at raygray.gmail. Uh, 
So R-A-Y-G-R-A-J at Gmail. And I think this is it, right? It's a wrap. Thank you, gentlemen. As we did in beginning the session here in dedicating this to something beyond our individuals, uh, probably not a bad way to close it off as well. If there's uh, an invocation or a dedication, Tom, that you want to share. There's a beautiful Sanskrit chant. I'll sing it. Sahana bhavatu, sahano bhunatu, sahaviryam karavavai, and what it says is, let us be together, let us have shared experience together. It literally means eat, you know, like eating food, shared experience together. Let us radiate the light of life, let us experience the truth together. Let's not use our energy to put anyone in fire. Let's not use our energy to condemn or to feed negativity. And it's a standard Vedic thing which kids chant in schools in India. In India, all schools start the day with that little chant, all the kids chanting it together. It comes from Rig Veda, one of the ancient documents of the Vedic tradition. What a perfect note to end on. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Fabulous. Thank you, Ray. Jay Gurudev. If you're enjoying these podcasts, I'll spend a moment talking about how you can make your individual contribution to the group effort of these podcasts. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you.